Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. I am Celeste Katz, senior politics reporter for Glamour Magazine here every Thursday with Jeff Simmons and... How are you today, Jeff? I'm doing well on this very snowy afternoon, Celeste. Oh my God, I know. It was a mission, an absolute mission to get here, but we made it. We made it. Tracking you on Uber was uh, very interesting, watching your car spin around on the way here. (laughs) It was terrifying, but thankfully, thankfully, we are all here in one piece, and we have a good show lined up for everybody, so uh, I think we should get right into it. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking a lot about voting. Certainly, we have been through a tumultuous midterm election season, and it is almost but actually not completely over just yet. So we have some very special guests today with us to uh, to talk about what is going on. Should we just jump right in? I think we should. Okay, great. So our first guest today is uh, United States Congresswoman Grace Meng. She's serving her third term in the House of Representatives. She represents the 6th Congressional District of New York, which includes West Central and Northeast Queens. She just won a force a fourth term in the House against a Green Party challenger in the November 6th elections. Congresswoman Meng is the first Asian American member of Congress from the state of New York, and she is the only Congress member of Asian American descent in the entire Northeast. Uh, she's the first female member of Congress from Queens since former vice presidential nominee Geraldine Ferraro. It's a pleasure, Congresswoman Meng, to have you on the program. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be on. Thanks. Good afternoon. We hope you're uh, nice and warm today, too. <laughs> it's a little snowy and wet here in D.C., but it's <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, so we have a, a lot of discu- a lot to discuss today, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, we wanted to take sort of a, a broad view here. Uh, you served the vice chair of the uh, Democratic National Committee, so you can talk about uh, sort of the last couple of years of rebuilding and advancing the party. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that's going and how you think that played out in uh, this year's midterms. Sure. Well, as we saw uh, in this year's election, Democrats won big, and this is largely due to uh, the Democratic Party learning after the 2016 election that we needed to do better uh, at outreach, uh, be better listeners, and make sure that we are expanding our universe of voters. And so uh, I'm proud to be part of this new DNC where the goal is really to reach every single zip code and that we are not just a party that pays attention to voters every fourth year, every fourth October before uh, presidential election year, and that we're really making sure that we're giving resources and making investments in our state parties and with working with our local activists, so many of the new groups and new coalitions that have formed since Trump got elected making sure that they have the resources that they need um, and just, you know, being there for people. So this is a a very busy week. You know, not all the races have been resolved right now and Democrats are leading in a number of those uh, uh, situations where they're not yet resolved. Where were you focused? Where, you know, I understand you traveled across the country. Where were some of the races that you uh, uh, were, you know, boots on the ground in? Well, one of my main priorities is to make sure that uh, we were focused on areas that people traditionally have not necessarily heard. 
uh, enough from or being having been paid attention enough by the Democratic Party. Um, I was in states uh, like Nevada, uh, Utah, um, New Hampshire, um, Atlanta, Georgia, even to Little Rock, Arkansas, and just saw uh, a lot of excitement out there. You know, in the last 10 years, uh, Democrats lost about 1,000 seats that had flipped from blue to red. And so we have a lot of ground to make up for. Um, but after this election, you know, we've won at least 380 of those seats back. We flipped, like you said, Jeff, 36 and counting congressional seats, seven governor seats, um, eight new legislative majorities that were picked up. So um, it was a real good night for us. But that is just the beginning. And as far as the specific types of voters this season, uh, from what I understand, you also concentrated in recent months, not not just in the last few weeks, you've been concentrating on trying to get that youth vote and trying to engage, get more youth, uh, more civically engaged. Tell us a little about what specifically you had done and where we need to improve on this in the future. Sure. Well, one of the biggest lessons that we learned as a party was that we need to do a better job at paying attention to certain groups who've been um, underrepresented and neglected by our party, um, whether these are rural voters, minority voters, um, and one of these groups are young voters. And whether you're talking about millennial age voters or college age voters, um, we need to do a better job at paying attention to their issues and making sure that we are improving our policies on issues that affect them. They have been loud and clear on issues that affect them. And so I've focused some of my efforts. For example, this past uh, year, uh, the past few months, I invested uh, almost $100,000 um, in hiring college campus organizers. So in our top five districts uh, in New York State that we wanted to flip, and we flipped three of them, there are 23 college campuses. And within just, uh, I would say, two or three months, um, we were able to, through these students, these students did all the work, um, register thousands of new voters. And so it's very exciting. And again, this is just the beginning. Uh, we knew that the turnout uh, would be higher. We knew that these elections would come down to a very close margin. And so uh, I like to think that our students and our young voters helped make a difference. And if you're just joining us again, you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is Driving Forces with Celeste Katz, me, and Jeff Simmons. And we are speaking to Congresswoman Grace Meng about uh, some of the lessons that we've learned uh, this month with the big midterm elections. Uh, Congresswoman, there's... um, as we said, a lot of these contests are, are wrapped up, but some of them are still not decided. Uh, there was a development earlier today, uh, for example, uh, more developments in the uh, recount in uh, Florida. We also have uh, some continuing activity in uh, Georgia, some other places as well. Um, a lot of these uh, contests were, were marked by discussion of um, potential voter suppression and how well uh, the um, the administration of the election was in terms of uh, was handled in terms of poll sites and so on. Do you have any thoughts on on what we saw there and how the way the physical way the election was run might have affected uh, who was able to have their voice heard and who was not? 
Sure. Well, we've seen real instances of voter suppression in areas like Georgia. Uh, when I was down there campaigning for Stacey Abrams, Lucy McBath, and Carolyn Bordeaux, um, you know, we heard about so many instances where uh, signatures, for example, did not match. We saw this also in Florida, where Patrick Murphy, who was a former congressman, um, they tried to reject his vote and his ballot, saying that his signature uh, did not match. And so there is a lot more work that we have to do there. We need to pay more attention to these voting um, restrictive uh, legislation that, that are being passed uh, around the state. Um, but, you know, we saw even just in, in Maine today, uh, Jared Golden, uh, the Democratic candidate, just won by about 3,000 votes. Uh, and his opponent is still unhappy and is trying to change the result uh, as we speak in a, with a legal challenge. Do you think, you know, we talk about the landscape across the country, should Election Day be designated a national holiday? Well, I'm biased. I have proposed legislation that would require Election Day to be a national holiday, uh, especially in New York, where our voter turnout is amongst the lowest in the country. Now that I've traveled around the country, I've seen what improvements New York State can make. Um, I've been in states like Nevada, where they have um, early voting, where you are able to vote at, let's say, your local supermarket, where we are trying to make voting as accessible uh, as possible. We should also have automatic voter registration, uh, restore voting rights to formerly incarcerated persons um, across the country, um, and just make it easier for people to vote. Uh, we saw in New York City, uh, with the high turnout this past election day, how much trouble they had uh, with the scanners and, and, and I guess with the rain um, but there's no need for lines like that. If people can vote weeks ahead of time, I was in Jersey where people were allowed to mail in their ballot um, days and weeks ahead of time. It's very common sense reform. And, and among the reforms that you also want nationally is lowering the, uh, the age when people can vote. Can you explain that? Definitely. Well, we've heard from our young people um, about so many issues that affect them. We have seen students um, rally uh, for better and more sensible gun safety legislation, uh, specifically after Parkland. We have seen what these young people are worried about. I met a young high school student um, on, on, during the campaign uh, who said that she should be writing her college application essay, not her will. And these are issues that our, our students and our kids are worried about. 16-year-olds uh, are allowed to work, they're allowed to drive, they uh, certainly worry about their safety and their life while they're in school. Um, the, the part of their brain that um, is used to make decisions, the front part of the brain is actually even fully formed, so for those who uh, oppose this from a scientific perspective, um, you know, that's, that, that makes sense too. And Congresswoman, um, in terms of some of these uh, uh, voting reforms, uh, even basic stuff that other states already do, like uh, same-day registration, uh, uh, automatic voter registration, some of, some of these things we do have, but some we don't, like early voting, weekend voting, and that sort of thing. What is the holdup, do you think? Who is, uh, who is not interested in seeing these reforms passed, and, and why? Well, I, I want to be positive. You know, I want to thank so many of the activists who have been working on issues like this for years, for decades. 
Uh, I'm really excited to see uh, Democrats uh, control the state Senate because I think we will finally be able to make some headway. Um, I was a former member of the state assembly where we worked on legislation like this um, and had always had trouble passing it in the state Senate. So I believe and I hope that this is something that has to be a top priority and and will be a top priority for the the newly democratically controlled Senate. So, uh, Congresswoman, we've got a number of uh, uh, newly elected officials coming in to the House later this year. And one of them them is uh, my neighborhood in Jackson Heights is Alexandria uh, Ocasio. uh, I always say it the wrong way. Ocasio-Cortez. I always reverse it. Uh Uh, And I happen to notice, uh, you know, something that I was... Uh, emailing Celeste here that these type of things annoy me that mm-hmm. they happen, but I noticed one of your <laughs> tweets in responding uh, to something that she had said and that you still get stopped in the halls and being mistaken for a spouse or an intern. Tell us a little about that situation and you know what your reaction is and how you respond when this happens. Sure. Well, first of all, our new members are actually here in DC with us. We've spent part of the day with them already. Uh, it is the most that uh, Congress has ever seen, that this country has ever seen. Um, So, you know, this is a very exciting time. Our Democratic caucus actually had to meet in a larger room, a room that I had never even been into (laughs) since I was elected because we have so many new members now. Um, This is something, so when I'm around Washington, D.C., and you may know that Congress members get a special shiny pin to wear around. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't wear my pin on purpose because um, I I am often and I like to see how people react when I tell them I'm a Congress member because I do often get mistaken uh, for an intern or a staff member. And there are times when even when I show my pin to get into buildings, even though it is clearly the pin that the member has, um, they people will just assume that it's a spousal pin, which looks completely different. Um, so when I saw what my new colleague tweeted, uh, I could immediately relate to that. And, you know, it's only her first week here, but I want to tell her that that might not stop. People are still not used to thinking of people who look like me and her as uh, their elected officials. And we've got a lot more diversity coming in, so people have to get used to this. Yes, definitely. Oh, Celeste. Uh, uh, yeah, no. I just have uh, one question. Can't I can't uh, uh, help but be curious um, about what you think is going to happen with leadership, uh, with new people coming in, the new Congress uh, getting started. What do you What do you see on the horizon there? Well, um, it's a good question. Very timely. Uh, unity is very important right now. You know, the first step, uh, important step, was to win back the House um, from the Republicans. Uh, they obviously still control the Senate. Uh, and the White House. And so that's something that Democrats uh, still need to be unified uh, and work towards. Uh, Right now is an incredible moment for our party as well to ensure that we are building the bench and establishing a pipeline of up-and-coming leaders. So whatever leadership looks like uh, in a few weeks, we need to make sure that diverse voices are at the table. We need to make sure that there are uh, voices of women at the top levels of leadership. Um, And so whatever we do, we need to focus on that, not just for this upcoming leadership election, but in years to come as well. 
So, Congresswoman, we've got just about two minutes left, and I really feel I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Uh, We just marked Veterans Day a few days ago, and you have been a proponent. You pushed legislation that supports our veterans, and that had just been signed into law by the president. Can you let our listeners know a little about that legislation and what it will will do? Sure. This uh, has been a top priority for me. It's actually a very bipartisan issue. Um, It's horrifying to me that our veterans who have spent their lives and their families have sacrificed uh, time with them, uh, who have fought for our country's democracy and and safety, that they come back and they have trouble uh, accessing timely benefits. Um, We're hearing in the news right now even that they are having trouble accessing benefits uh, on time because of um, you know, employee and human resource issues uh, within the VA. And so that that's not acceptable. Our office, for example, has someone from the VA come every single month because we want to make it as easy uh, as possible for our constituents, our veterans, to be able to access um, their benefits. Um, we worked on issues that, um, um, that affect and hopefully help our veterans deal with health issues, for example, but even issues that are not necessarily uh, traditional and conventional, you know, for the increasing number of female veterans uh, and soldiers, for them to be able to um, choose health care practitioners of their choice, uh, for them, for pregnant uh, women who are serving in the military to be able to have uniforms that fit them, for example to ensure that um, there's uh, easier hiring from within uh, federal agencies uh, so that our veterans are able to uh, get employed. Um, And there's just so many issues that affect our veterans that we have to continue to make sure that they are being served by our government. Congresswoman, uh, if people want to learn more about you and your work and the legislation that you're involved with, uh, where should they go? So they can always look um, on our website, meng.house.gov, um, or they can call our office, 718-445-7860. And, of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Rep. Grace Meng. Congresswoman Grace Meng, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on Driving Forces today. Thank you so much. Thanks for your work. Stay nice and warm. So, uh, Celeste, obviously, it took you it took you a while to get here because of the snow. I keep so, rubbing uh, it so in. So that's not the only issue today. We're going to have another guest in a few moments. But any other political developments that, uh, as we lead into the next guest, that you want to talk about? Anything that you've been tracking at Glamour Magazine where you work? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly we are still keeping an eye on what's going to happen in uh, Georgia and Florida. There have been, as I mentioned earlier, there were some updates today regarding. Uh, Uh, the Florida recount and what's going to happen there. And um, earlier today, we were talking about how uh, some of these, uh, 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 you know, some of the ripple effect from what we saw in these elections in terms of uh, new people running, new people voting, uh, new people getting involved, how that's going to play out. I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, be able to uh, speak on a panel this morning at Hofstra University uh, with Howard Dean and Ed Rollins. So we had sort of both sides of the uh, the political uh, spectrum there. Any main takeaway from that event? Uh 
yeah, it's uh, 2020 is going to be a barn burner. This is going to be, uh, and as uh, you know, potentially uh, in the primary phase, uh, could be uh, sort of the the bloodbath type of thing that we saw on the Republican side in 2016. Uh, so that is going to be a very, very interesting contest to watch, uh, considering what uh, Donald Trump has done to uh, with for the Republican Party and um, what the Democrats think is going to be the best way to confront him and try to get back the White House. And were there any um, uh, any predictions as far as voting reforms or that didn't come up? Well, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit. I think that uh, it, certainly people are aware of, of some of the issues that are going on uh, in those states, in states like uh, Georgia and Florida. Florida, obviously, being a battleground, uh, that is always one to watch. Uh, Howard Dean did say officially in, in uh, all caps that uh, Hillary Clinton will not be running for president again. Uh, he considers Joe Biden ostensibly sort of the front runner right now. But what he really tried to emphasize was that if you want to um, look at the lessons of 2018 and apply them to 2020 and you really want to take on Trump, he says, you know, people of his generation, the sort of uh, uh, Ed Rollins was kind enough to point out he has a, a 70th birthday uh, <laughs> right around now. And he says, look, you know, somebody my age is not necessarily who the Democrats should be looking toward as the you know the future of presidential politics uh, for our party. We have to look younger. We have to look in a, a different direction. And so uh, he said that he wasn't necessarily inclined to uh, to promise that he would be endorsing anybody before uh, the nominating convention, uh, next nominating convention in 2020. But he did uh, he did strongly suggest that uh, sort of more of the same in a way is not really going to cut it. So uh, this discussion of voting uh, and the upcoming elections brings us to our next guest who we have on the line. Uh, our next guest today is Stephen Spaulding. He is the Chief of Strategy and External Affairs for Common Cause, uh, where he works to advance the organization's mission of open democracy and accountable government. Uh, founded with 4,000 core members in 1970, that's before you were born, Celeste, to serve as a people's lobby, Common Cause has grown into a nationwide network of more than a million members and supporters with a presence in 30 states and in Washington, D.C. Stephen Spaulding, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. First, before we get into a discussion about the uh, the midterms and voting, can you tell us a little about your work with Common Cause and what you're focusing on, on now? Yes. Well, as you mentioned, Common Cause uh, has a network of more than a million members all throughout the country in every single congressional district. And what we're working and fighting for is an open, honest, and accountable government to reduce the undue influence of money in the political process, ensure that everyone can vote and have their ballot counted as cast and have confidence that their vote will be counted as cast, ensuring that we have high ethical standards for our elected officials, ensuring that our media, uh, uh, that our media is open, uh, that we have independent voices because it's such a critical part of, of our democracy and ensuring that we have an informed uh, informed citizenry. So all of those issues we work on both nationally and at the state levels and at the municipal levels as well, which is increasingly where where the action is. But it's about advancing 
these these our democratic values small d democratic values we're a nonpartisan organization but advancing these values at the state and local level and realizing really the promise of democracy through grassroots action through lobbying through strategic communications through research and writing kind of all those tools are tools that we employ every single day and um just looking at some of the controversies that are are going on or have been uh, <clears throat> pardon me have been going on during this election season uh, not only in places like Florida and Georgia but uh, those are uh, certainly uh, areas where we have seen uh, issues and some questions about uh, election administration and voter suppression um, I was curious to ask you overall. You know, how did we how did we get to where we are now? Is it a is it a question of states using kind of these outdated anachronistic systems? Is it a question of spending the money to to invest in better technology? It is is it a a lack of willingness maybe to change the laws to make it uh, easier and faster and even safer in terms of security to vote? Like why why is our system as uh, riddled with problems as it is? Well, it's a little bit of all of the above. And it's true that um, we have a highly decentralized system. We're, we're kind of unique in the world when it comes to how we run our elections. Um, you know, back in 2012, it was, uh, President Obama was taking to the stage in Chicago and saying, you know, ex- declaring victory while people were still in line in Florida. Of course, the, the count had come in, and it, it was clear that he had won a second term in the White House. But there were people still in line, and he said, you know, we've got to fix that. And he set up a commission, a bipartisan commission, called the Presidential Commission on Election Administration that looked at these, these specific issues. What is it about the way we run our elections that can lead to long lines, purged voters, people not able to cast votes with confidence. And they made a number of strong recommendations. Some jurisdictions have adopted them, some haven't. And there have been other, there have been other commissions as, as well. I mean, the point here is that we know that there are, that there are solutions, uh, and some states, such as Colorado, have really been leading the way. Other places like Minnesota, which have some of the highest turnout. You know, in Colorado, it's, it's largely a, a vote-by-mail state. People can get their ballots and drop them off at, at vote centers. Uh, there's a number of ways that they can return their ballots. Other states have adopted increasingly automatic voter registration to ensure that when, you know, people want to vote, let's put the burden on not not on not on uh, voters to figure out what paperwork they need, but really on the government because the data exists to get people registered. If we can put a man on the moon, we should be able to get all eligible Americans registered to vote without all of the hiccups that we've been seeing. We can have same-day voter registration, which is uh, in place here where I'm speaking from in the District of Columbia and in a number of other jurisdictions where people can register to vote on Election Day. So we've got to, all of which is to say we need to lower the barriers to participation. I can talk briefly about, you know, I was in the National Command Center of Election Protection, which is a nonpartisan uh, group of attorneys and activists and organizations that work to protect the vote. It's run out of, um, in many places, uh, here in D.C. at least, at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Common Cause, my organization is one of the 
key partners of Election Protection Coalition. We run what's called the 866-Hour Vote Hotline, and it's available in other languages as well. But voters were able to call and log any problems that they had voting, ask questions about the voting process, where is my polling place, what did I need to do to register. But they also could report problems. And and then on that day, before election day, well, up until election day, the Election Protection Coalition logged more than 31,000 phone calls. And what we heard time and time again was, A, jurisdictions were really unprepared for the high turnout that we saw. They were not resourced. Um, there was a jurisdiction right outside of Washington, D.C. There was a huge surge of voters late in the afternoon and early evening, and places were running out of uh, regular ballots. We had a number of people that were expecting their absentee ballots. Um, they weren't received on time, or they were rejected because of bad, quote-unquote, signature matches. And of course, and this is where I'll, I'll end here because I've been talking for a while, but you, you mentioned we also just have all of these old, outdated machines. Many of Many jurisdictions are using machines that predate, you know, the iPhone and that came out, you know, after the Help America Vote Act gave states and local jurisdictions funds to purchase voting equipment. But, you know, like any equipment, it starts to fail. It needs to be repaired and it doesn't live on in perpetuity. So we know that there are solutions. We know that there are problems. And now we need to come together uh, and advocate for reforms and fixes because 2020 is right around the corner and many other places have elections uh, in 12 months. You've been listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my co-host Celeste Katz on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We are on with Stephen Spalling of Common Cause. Celeste? Yeah, I wanted to uh, I wanted to follow up on on something that you mentioned uh, a little uh, a moment ago, uh, the idea of making voting more uh, accessible and hearing from people who feel like uh, either that they were disenfranchised or that they ran into uh, problems for various reasons uh, at the polls. Um, one thing that's been talked about, uh, perhaps on the flip side of making voting easier, although there's uh, you know, uh, differences of opinion on this is the idea of the the president um, advocating for uh, more voter ID laws. Uh, certain states have them, uh, certain states do not. Some states have stricter laws than others. The most recent thing I saw was that he said voter ID shouldn't be a big deal to bring a, a picture with you if you want to cast a ballot because you know if you want to quote unquote buy a box of cereal you need to show photo identification. So I was just curious as to see, um, you know, sort of long term what you think the uh, the odds of that are. I know that a lot of people in uh, in the voting rights uh, community were were uh, quite concerned about what he described, the president described as his um, very distinguished voter fraud panel, which of course no longer exists, partly because of of outcry from from civil rights groups uh, like the ones that you've described. Well, you know, first of all, just as a baseline matter, I think we can all agree that our democracy is better when more eligible voters show up and participate. And really, we have a choice between a democracy that includes all eligible voters and a system that excludes people based on their circumstances or their backgrounds. And that's, that's what we've seen in large part with these 
uh, voter ID laws that have passed and spread like a virus, uh, particularly after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. So, you know, before 2013, jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination when it comes to voting had to have changes to their voting laws, what was called pre-cleared by a federal court or by the Department of Justice. Well, the Supreme Court struck down the heart of that law. Congress has taken no action to fix it. And you have states like Texas, states like North Carolina, other places rushing to enact laws requiring these very specific forms of identification to show up and vote. We're talking in some places a student ID doesn't count, but, you know, a gun license, you know, does. So, you know, while we need to safeguard the integrity of our elections from tampering, obviously, uh, we need to make sure that all eligible Americans can participate. And in many respects, these photo ID laws are, are well, in almost all respects, are a solution in search of a problem. That's simply, uh, we, we simply do not live in a world where people are impersonating and showing up at the polls, impersonating their friends uh, and neighbors. Really, I think the real fraud has been the manipulation of our voting laws by self-interested politicians who have made it much harder for certain populations to vote, doing what once at one court called, you know, discriminating with, with surgical precision uh, in enacting these, these sorts of laws. So the president makes a number of irresponsible claims, uh, well, near daily, um, but he has increasingly now attacked uh, on Twitter the uh, integrity of, of the elections in uh, Florida, in uh, Arizona, and other places. Um, and unfortunately, that kind of rhetoric has been poisoning the well, I think, and we've seen it start to trickle down. As you mentioned, he set up his sham voter fraud commission that was shut down. Common Cause was one of several lawsuits uh, that were filed against the commission for its illegal operations, and they eventually shut down, having not found evidence you know, of anything that they, were, that they were looking for. Really, they were looking to justify the president's false claim that he lost the popular vote because up to 5 million people voted illegally. Um, that was shut down. And what we're trying to do is educate the public about these, get folks' IDs where we need them, but really pivot to solutions because there are problems with our voting systems. The problem is not enough eligible people are participating. I continue to see uh, lots of crowing about the fact that this was the highest turnout election since uh, early in the 20th century, and yet it still didn't even reach 50%. One out of two more than one out of two eligible people are sitting out midterm elections. And we need to be asking ourselves, you know, let's take stock and recognize that, sure, that was boosted, that, that turnout, you know, boosted, but there is so much more we need to do to ensure that every eligible person can vote and want to vote and know that their ballot will be counted and make a difference. And it includes, by the way, I do think it includes reducing the undue influence of, of money. I think that, that reduces trust in the system. We, of course, have partisan gerrymandering all throughout the country that has made jurisdictions a little less, much less competitive and less representative of, of the constituencies that our elected officials are serving. So, you know, there's no one cure-all, but all of it together, I think, is bolstering uh, a democracy movement, a number of jurisdictions that had ballot measures, whether it was curbing gerrymandering, uh, expanding the franchise 
allowing people with former felony convictions to, to have their voting rights restored, those all passed overwhelmingly. So there is a democracy movement in this country. We just need to do everything we can to make everyone's voice heard. And uh, in light of, uh, obviously, I understand, and I, I'm sure our listeners here at, at WBAI understand some of the uh, uh, larger political ramifications of the president, either suggesting that there is widespread voter fraud without actually providing any evidence of it, and also at the same time uh, suggesting that voter ID is no big deal because, uh, you know, you need voter ID to to shop for groceries. That's a, an oversimplification. But for some people um, who hear some of the other arguments, uh, before I pass it back to Jeff here, I just wanted to ask real quick devil's advocate, um, people who support voter ID say two things. Number one, that there is not very much you can do in the United States without some form of picture ID. You can't open a bank account. You can't get on a plane. You can't take out a loan. Uh, you can't get a credit card. You can't uh, do a lot of these things. You know, uh, uh, that picture ID uh, is uh, widely used and that uh, it is not necessarily that you have to have a driver's license because uh, places like New York City offer a municipal ID. Uh, uh, New York State offers non-driver photo identification and so on. Um, the other thing that people say in terms of voter ID is that um, it's not meant to disenfranchise people, but it, it is rather meant to ensure that people who shouldn't be voting are not diluting the votes of people who are legally entitled to vote. So I'm just curious as to what you say to those kinds of of pushback arguments on why voter ID is, is not that big of a deal. Well, so first of all, I should say um, I don't think people have an issue with identify uh, identification um, when people show up to the polls they need to identify who they are when they cast a ballot whether that is um, sometimes by signature by identifying their address but people identify themselves the question is what type of identification and what we're all and in many jurisdictions unfortunately that have passed these laws many jurisdictions of which have a long history of discriminating against communities of color, they are requiring forms of identification that are actually not that easy to obtain, that require access to underlying uh, documents. So, um, you know, people will have to produce um, their birth certificates or other records that uh, in many places they, they simply don't have those anymore. So uh, older voters, elderly voters, disproportionately communities of color, uh, that are subject to these laws, um, this puts further burdens on their access to the ballot, unjustified burdens. Some studies have shown that actually one in ten voters in some jurisdictions lack the very specific form of ID that these new laws are requiring. And so you have to ask yourself, well, we're going to if we're going to require this to access the most fundamental right, the right to vote, um, there better be a pretty darn good justification for those laws if it's going to be costly to obtain. And in many jurisdictions, it is. I understand that many people do have uh, photo ID, but a lot of people don't. And by the way, that disproportionately affects, again, um, underrepresented populations. And so it is, again, a solution in search of a problem. It's not so much identification that's the, the issue. It's the sort of identification that is, that is required. Uh, 
And it doesn't just affect voting. It also affects voter registration. There have been some jurisdictions that wanted to require documentary proof of citizenship just to register to vote, even though a lot of this information is otherwise available or even though people testify or sign under penalty of perjury that they say who they are, people don't walk around at voter registration drives with you know, photocopiers and asking for copies of passports just to get on, just to get on the rolls when there are other less burdensome ways to verify identity. So, Stephen, we've just got about 30 seconds left. Uh, wanted to just a- have you tell our listeners uh, how they can find out more about Common Cause. Yes, thank you. Folks can join us at commoncause.org. Check out our website, uh, download our issue briefs, uh, join our email list. We are constantly sending out uh, email actions asking people to take action. Um, commoncause.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Common Cause. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Common Cause. And in, in New York, we have a, a great chapter and a great office in New York led by our executive director, Susan Lerner, right there in New York City. Uh, and so you can, when you sign up at commoncause.org, you can also get uh, alerts related to the city and related to New York. Stephen Spaulding from Common Cause, thank you very much for joining Celeste Katz and uh, me on Driving Forces today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And you have been listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz and uh, me on WB at Jeff Simmons on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. As we're talking about ID, I had to look up quickly on the computer. I thought I had misunderstood this, that I wasn't thinking clearly, but just that President Trump was suggesting that you needed an ID to basically buy cereal. Yeah, that 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 was the, and this is this is sort of a, a variation on a theme uh, that he uh, remarks that he made at a, a previous event where he said, you know, what's the big deal? You can't even shop for groceries without photo ID. You can't do anything. And you know, I don't know. I mean, the last time I went to pick up milk, they didn't uh, they didn't ask me for uh, fingerprints or didn't ask me my passport or my driver's license. Um, and look, nobody here is suggesting that uh, voting should be uh, free for all, that uh, anybody should be able to uh, to vote if they're not entitled to do that. It's a, it's a, a right of uh, citizenship, and there are limits to it. But uh, I think what we're talking about here, and we have another guest coming on uh, who's going to help us out, is uh, the question of whether um, some of the laws and regulations that we're looking at are uh, in the nature of encouraging participation or limiting participation. It's very interesting. Somebody uh, mentioned to me that uh, of, of the, uh, the rights and freedoms of being a, an American citizen, voting is one of the few, if not the only, for which you have to actually register. You don't have to sign up somewhere to have freedom of speech or freedom of the press or freedom of religion, but you do have to register to vote. So interesting topic here with uh, uh, big picture implications. So uh, Celeste, how about introducing our final guest of the day? I am very excited to do so. And our final guest here on Driving Forces is Perry Grossman. He is the uh, Voting Rights Project Attorney at the New York Civil Liberties Union. He focuses on litigation and advocacy efforts regarding voting rights and election law. And Perry, it's a pleasure to have you here on Driving Forces with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. 
So uh, we're going to jump right in because I was looking over uh, the uh, NYCLU website and we were talking about voter turnout uh, a little bit earlier and voter registration a little bit earlier. I saw something on your site that sort of, uh, uh, you know, I found kind of kind of amazing yet depressing yet scary. Uh, you tell me if this is if this is right that New York ranks forty seventh in the nation in terms of the voter registration rate. Is that? Uh, it's absolutely right. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's 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 accurate. And um, you know, when we talk about voter suppression, we tend to think about things like voter ID laws and you know everything that's just gone on in Georgia with you know closing polling places in black counties and um, you know cries of voter fraud and voter intimidation. But in New York, what we have in 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 just excess quantity is what's called passive voter suppression, and that we make it unusually hard to register to vote, right? We don't have early voting. We don't have online registration. We don't have um, vote by mail. And we have a 25-day registration cutoff, um, which we actually just sued as a violation of the state constitution. Um, and all of these things make it difficult, right? Voting is kind of, in some ways, a real a real act to the commitment and a real act of faith because, you know, people don't think of their own one vote as, as mattering an awful lot but it actually takes a lot of energy and effort to go cast your ballot. So every little thing you do to make registration and voting harder is going to make fewer people register and vote. And so we put a lot of barriers in the way here in New York. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to knock them down uh, in court and we're trying to knock them down in the legislature. And hopefully we're going to get some of that good work done. So, you know, our previous guest said, there, you know, there's not one cure-all. But then what are some of the simple or, you know, what are more some of the more easier remedies that you see on the horizon that you think might be, you know, uh, a few of the uh, reforms that can be enacted most uh, urgently? Sure. So I, I can tell you, I just come out of a hearing testifying uh, the New York State Assembly Elections Committee, um, and we were talking about early voting and no excuse absentee balloting. Those are two really important, really good ones, right? 30, I think 37 or 38 other states in D.C. have early voting, so we're a little bit uh, we're a little bit of an outlier there and not having it, but there seems to be a lot of momentum around that. Um, we are also hopefully going to get automatic voter registration, right? So you can opt out of being registered to vote, but every otherwise... You know, every time you come in contact with a state agency, you know, you're going to uh, find your way under the rolls one way or another. Um, you know, the probably the most consequential thing we could do would be to have election day registration, right? So if you just get to the polls on election day and you're able to register and vote all in one shot, that has shown to have the biggest impact on turnout. Um, you know, if you look at studies, there's, there's generally sort of a 5% turnout bump that tends to come with uh, with election day registration, so that would be a very big deal. Um, it's going to take a little more effort to get that in New York because we've got some strictures in the state constitution, um, and knocking down that registration deadline from from 25 days. Um, that's going to be an important thing, and we we managed to get our lawsuit on file just before the polls closed on election day. So um, hopefully we can have that in place sooner rather than later. Those those are just a few of the fixes, right? I mean, we have we have other things that need to get done too. We have especially here in New York City, we have so many different uh, languages spoken by voters, but we only have language assistance available for um, a really small handful. We need to be expanding language access. We need to be, um, we need to improve poll worker training. Uh, we need to improve the quality of our election machines, right? If you were 
involved in that in that mess that was election day where all the machines broke down. Clearly, we need to do uh, a lot to invest more in, in our election technology. So there are there are so many low hanging fruit here in New York um, to make elections better. But I, I've actually got a lot of optimism that that we can make some of those important changes in the next few months. And you mentioned that this will some will require constitutional revisions. But given the changing political landscape in Albany to uh, single party rule come uh, January, do you think it will be easier to move through some of these revisions? I, I do. Um, I, I do for two reasons. One is um, the party that's unified in power right now has always been the party that has been more friendly to expanding the franchise. Um, it's been the leadership in the state Senate in the last few years that's really blocked um, common sense voting reform. So changing leadership makes a very big difference. Um, but also, I think people are more attuned now to voting rights as an issue, and, and particularly the voting rights in the North, right? I think traditionally we've thought of voting rights as as a Southern issue, to, to some extent, maybe even a Southwestern issue. Um, for people who are really in the know, it's actually a very, very big issue in, in uh, Native American lands and in, in, in Alaska. But I think recently we've, we've discovered, and we've come to understand, that, that voting rights is actually an important, um, an important issue here in, here in New York and other states in the North, where we've maybe had a pass for too long on, on the deficits we have in giving people access to the ballot. And that's a that's an interesting point that that you make. Uh, actually, I was uh, reading some stuff about that and then looking into some stuff about that specific to uh, the Native American population. Uh, I think in specifically, for example, North Dakota, which I believe has the distinction of being the only state that does not require voter registration at all. But there were some significant, significant issues there um, about uh, potential disenfranchisement of uh, of uh, the Native American population, the indigenous people there uh, during this uh, during this campaign. Um, And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that this is not something that is just a problem that happens elsewhere, that New York has its own issues. I was curious, I know maybe nobody likes to, to lay blame, but my question is always, if everyone thinks that the system could be better, why isn't it? Like, who, who's who's holding this up? Well, it's, it's an excellent question. The answer is it's always a lot of different things, but we can point the finger in a few places. Number one is incumbents and, 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 and the people in power always tend to like the system to put them in power. So if you have an electorate, if you go back a ways, right, an electorate that is largely uh, white and relatively affluent, and you, those are the people you want to see keep voting when there's uh, less incentive to expand the franchise in a way that brings you know, minorities and low-income folks into, into the fold in a way that makes um, their voting a lot easier. So it's generally the people in power just sort of wanting to preserve the power structure because it gets them reelected. Um, so that's, that's always been sort of an important driving force wherever it happens. And so certainly that's, that's been the case in New York as well. And, and New York actually probably has a more checkered history than most uh, northern states when it comes to voting rights. Um, you know, there's, there's a Supreme Court decision that you guys might be familiar with, Shelby County v. Holder, which invalidated Section 5 of the voting rights law. Actually, by the way, Section 4B, but that's either here or there. The point is that it, it, it rendered the preclearance decision of the Voting Rights Act inoperable. And what that said is for the states that were covered, 
by that provision, they had to run all of the changes to their voting laws, whether it's a statewide redistricting or moving a polling place from one Main Street to two Main Street, they have to clear those through either the Department of Justice or a, or a federal district court in D.C. And a lot of people don't know that three counties in New York were, were, um, were covered by the Voting Rights Act, uh, by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, there was a lot of discrimination against Spanish-speaking voters in New York, and certainly we've seen uh, discrimination against um, other voters of color here in New York. Um, we do have a good, solid history of, of voter suppression here as well. So, Perry, we've got about a minute left. Final thoughts before we wrap up and also re, uh, let our listeners know how they can learn more about your organization. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's we've got a real opportunity in the next few months to make voting rights a priority here in New York to get our state legislature to finally put through some important bills under the governor, uh, governor's desk to get early voter registration deadlines shortened to get automatic voter registration, to get, um, you know, criminal justice-involved individuals fully re-enfranchised. So call your legislators, you know, come out, make some noise, tell them that it's important, and, and that's going to get us to, to catch up with the rest of the United States when it comes to voting. And you can always check us out at uh, www.nyclu.org. Um, our contact information is there. We're always thrilled to have you involved. And there's a lot of voting rights work to be done, so I'd be delighted to hear from you. Perry Grossman, thank you very much for joining Celeste Katsumi here on Driving Forces today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. So uh, to our listeners, we are about to come to a close. We would like to thank our guests, uh, Perry Grossman, who you just heard from, from the NYCLU, Congresswoman Grace Meng, and Stephen Spaulding of Common Cause. We also want to let our listeners know that while next Thursday is a holiday, Thanksgiving, Celeste and I will be back here with a very special show where Celeste is going to, in great detail, discuss all of her uh, memories of Thanksgiving growing up. Yes, and Jeff is going to bake a turkey on the air. <laughs> Reggie's waiting for this one. So <laughs> to we be, would like to, to be thank over. You. We'd like to thank you all again. Uh, you are listening to WBAI ninety nine point five FM. Thank you very much for joining uh, Celeste Katz and me here. And Reggie, thanks again for a great job on the boards. Have a great day.
Join the African Diaspora International Film Festival from November 23rd to December 9th and celebrate black life on the big screen. Discover over 60 entertaining and revealing fiction and documentary films from over 30 countries. Explore ADIFF's identity politics and Black Panther program. Discover Kofi Annan's suspended dream and the life of 2018 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Dennis McQuaggy. The African Diaspora International Film Festival, November 23rd to December 9th in Manhattan. For tickets and schedule, go to nyadiff.org or call 212-864-1760. This is where Black Lives Matter. Hi, this is Sean Rhodes from the award-winning Midnight Ravers. On Sunday, November 18th, from 3 to 9 p.m., WBAI will broadcast Consabor Latino's annual Salsa Explosion fundraiser, live from SOB's, which is located at 204 Varick Street, corner of Varick and Houston Street in the West Village. The show will feature many world-renowned musicians, and special Consabor Latino Lifetime Achievement Awards will be presented. If you can't make it to SOB's, you can go online at give to the number two wbai.org and make your donation that way during the program. So be sure to tune in and show your support. Again, that's Sunday, November 18th from 3 to 9 p.m. Only on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM. The defense industry, as it's called, is immensely powerful. It has a tremendous interest in maintaining these conflicts. We have the capability to stop the bloodshed around the world. The Trump administration is on a collision course with Iran. Monday, November 19th, a film screening and WBAI benefit featuring Enemies of Peace, preventing the next war in the Middle East, followed by a discussion led by filmmaker Roland Marconi and guests. Because what's been happening in the Middle East for a couple of decades now has, has just been horrendous. Monday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at the Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, between Hoyt and Bond. Admission to benefit WBAI is just $20. Register as a BAI buddy and enter for free. Info at WBAI.org. November is National Native American Heritage Month. So come spend the evening with me, John Kane, from WBAI's Let's Talk on Thursday, November 29th at 7 p.m. I will be hosting a free screening of Even the Rain, a powerful film that demonstrates the brutal acts committed against Native peoples by Columbus and his men and the violence and exploitation that continues even now. This Spanish-language film layers history, racism, and the plight of Indigenous peoples in a unique plot that recreates the past and strikes at the issues of today. And I want to extend a special invitation to our Spanish-speaking friends to help us catch all the nuances of the film. So come celebrate our special month by joining us at the Brooklyn Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. That's Thursday, November 29th, 7 p.m. for Even the Rain.
The WBAI Community Advisory Board will meet on November 18th at 1 p.m. at the 60 Wall Street Atrium. Everyone is welcome to attend. Once again, the WBAI Community Advisory Board will meet on Sunday, November 18th at 1 p.m. at the 60 Wall Street Atrium. Everyone is welcome to attend. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Driving Forces, hosted and produced by Celeste.